everybody, and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and with me this evening is a gentleman who brings the positivity. He talked me into feeling more optimistic about this game, and now I think maybe I talked him into feeling more pessimistic. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. <laughs> hey, Taylor. I do think after we went back through and rewatched that we both ended up meeting somewhere in the middle, and maybe that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that probably is. So it did occur to me that we could have probably recorded the conversation we had at the end of the game and put that out as a quick take, hot take. Maybe we'll do that uh, for the final or for maybe the Gold Cup games. We did not put out the quick take, hot take, but the quick chat we did have was me feeling a little bit more pessimistic, a little bit unimpressed by some of the moments in the the USA's 1-0 win over Honduras in the Nations League semifinal. Joe was feeling more optimistic. I was wondering if maybe it was because I thought the U.S. were going to win this by some distance, and obviously that that did not end up being the case. So I'm really excited to see how we sort of come together, if we come together, to find commonality to approach this from the same perspective. Yeah, maybe we'll find common ground. I think we typically do. We don't usually end up looking at things from vastly different perspectives. <laughs> yeah. But Just screaming a, at each other. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, that hasn't <laughs> happened yet. This is such a, a weird game and such a different game mm-hmm. than Switzerland friendly, right? Which almost yeah. makes it hard. I mean, we had this long conversation after that Switzerland game and, and, and the podcast, I think, was Mm-hmm. good but it almost makes it hard even to bring many themes over from that game to this game because the, the big theme from the switzerland game was the high press and, and did it get exposed mm-hmm. and how was it effective and what moments was it effective and then in this game the u.s didn't press almost at all because they didn't have to Honduras no. had no interest in playing with the ball for 95 percent of this game so the narrative and what we watched for completely changed it became okay what is the u.s doing with the ball and i think they did some things well in the first half especially and they did some things not so well and we'll talk about all that stuff and and what honduras did to make life hard for the u.s as well we certainly will and i'm excited to do so we're going to get into that first half and the lineups and everything we saw first i did want to let listeners know in honor of the way that game went down we are going to be taking long awkward pauses every (laughs) two to four minutes the audience should just assume that there are various honduran players laying around our recording areas uh, but we will sort of try to pick (laughs) it up and uh, get the momentum back hopefully it doesn't derail us too much joe oh my gosh that was so good taylor and so true that second (laughs) half that second half hurt me and it hurt everyone and that's CONCACAF, but man, it, it doesn't ever get if, more fun to watch and to sit through something I, like I that. can't, like, I can't tell if it was because, like, the, the was it uh, Saprissa and the Union where there was, like, the yep, brawl on yep. the field? Like, at least that had some, like, there, there was a, like, a, a boiling over point, and there were various semi-boiling over points in this game, but I think because it never really all kicked off, it just kept being these... Oh, another player's down 70 yards away from the play through a non-contact injury. That's not suspicious at all. But we can talk more about Honduras <laughs> uh, having some cockacaf moments later. First, let's start with the U.S.'s lineup, shall we? Um, Joe, I know I saw you tweeting that you were uh, mildly unhappy not to see Yunus Musa in the starting 11. Uh, what would you have liked to see uh, heading into this game? I mean, it wasn't far off besides that. I have okay. a soft spot in my heart. And I think you do too, Taylor, for Yunus Musa. So I was just sad Certainly. to to not mm-hmm. see him in this lineup after I thought, okay, he doesn't start against Switzerland. That must mean he's ready for this game. And I, I get that we weren't going to see Tyler Adams likely. He's still working his way back to fitness after an injury. So I didn't have any issue seeing Jackson Yule again. Maybe Kellen Acosta would have, been a, would have been a better fit. And maybe the game that we saw actually proves that. But Either way, it wasn't a great surprise to see Ewell, but I was surprised to see Leggett over Musa again. And I, I was bummed out by that. And I think the first half, Musa would have done a, a much better job than Leggett did. But maybe I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. The rest of the lineup that Berhalter put out, not surprising. Christian Pulisic starts over Brendan Aronson. Not a surprise. Josh Sargent gets another start. Gio Reyna gets another start in that front line. Weston McKenney, Leggett, and Ewell. We kind of talked about that already. The only other change besides Stefan coming in goal for Horvath was Anthony Robinson coming in for Reggie Cannon. And to be honest, Taylor, I haven't seen enough of Robinson versus Cannon to have a real preference of the two fullbacks out of those three between Dest, Robinson, Cannon, where is Dest playing at this point? Mm -hmm. I find it hard to care a whole lot one versus the other. So I wasn't too upset about Robinson shifting Dest over to that right side. Yeah. I agree. And I'll say, like, maybe it requires a third rewatch. Hopefully not. But I will say Destin Robinson are the players that I have probably the least notes about from this game, which is surprising, given that with them both starting in the positions they did, I would have assumed that there would be a lot more of them being involved at various points in various ways. They were certainly they certainly had their moments, both in attack and defense. But I would say. For that change coming in, I thought it was going to be a lot more attack, a lot more aggressive run, 
ends and sort of overloads on the outside. And I don't think we saw as much of that. I think a lot of that is due to the excellent defensive work of Honduras. I was not expecting them to come out and look as compact and tight as they did. I talked about that in the Soccer 101 episode where I sort of quickly previewed them. I thought they'd be in a 442. I think I got some of the personnel wrong. I did get a few of them right. Uh, but I thought from what I saw in the Greece game that that 442, uh, the Greece friendly that they lost, they kept sort of getting stretched out. The wide midfielders would get pulled a little bit too wide. One of the mid- central midfielders would step to try to kind of uh, create more of uh, a favorable balance further up the field, but that left uh, Davy Flores to cover a ton of ground. And it just it felt like a game where the United States would have uh, opportunities in space, time on the ball. They would be able to kind of get some quick passing triangles and open Honduras up. And I really thought it was going to be a more dominant display. Joe, in the first maybe 10 to 15 minutes, what were you feeling when you saw the way Honduras were approaching? Or maybe even a better question would be, what did you see Honduras doing from the start that made it difficult for the United States to find any joy in front of goal? Sure, yeah. Honduras looked compact. They looked pretty tight. The The commentators kept saying they're stepping out, they're pressing, they're, they're, they're getting ready, they're choosing their moments to press. Yeah. They, they really weren't, right? They were in this mid-block Agreed. That, that dropped into a low-block 4-4-2. They had that front two of Albert, Elise, and Lozano marking or, or just shadowing and shifting back and forth between the opposing yep. center backs for the U.S. and then Jackson Ewell. And, and the goal of that was to take Jackson Ewell out of the game. And that's something we saw back in Olympic qualifying for the U23s. It's a pretty common approach when you're defending in a 4-4-2 to shadow and mark that opposing number six out of possession. So that's not a huge shock, but they did it pretty effectively, or maybe it's Jackson Ewell not moving quite as much. Maybe, I know, I, Taylor, I know you have thoughts on that. We'll get back to that, I'm sure. But they, they sat deeper in this 4-4-2, and they made life hard for the U.S. They made it really hard to play through the middle. I kept seeing on Twitter folks talking about the U.S.'s central midfield has been completely absent in this game. They, they've been too passive. They haven't been able to get involved. And that's exactly what Honduras was trying to do. They, they used Davy Flores and Lopez in that midfield. Those are their two central midfielders in their 4-4-2. They used those two players, especially Flores, to shadow the, US, the U.S.'s number eight. So Sebastian Legette and Weston McKinney, especially Flores and Legette. When, when Legette would step and when he would drop, Flores oftentimes would step right with him, which made it really hard for him to get on the ball and actually do effective things with it. And the U.S. went on to leverage that to their advantage in moments. But Honduras, credit to them, they defended in a tight, compact way that denied space in central areas. That's, that's not a bad game plan for this team coming up against the United States. No, absolutely not. And I think it, it made the U.S. change up what they wanted to do. And anytime you as the underdog can make the stronger opponent sort of change what they want to do, adjust their approach, I would argue that that is you winning the tactical battle at least early. And and I'm right there with you, Joe, that I saw the U.S. be uh, wasteful at times in possession, slow a lot of the time on the ball in possession. And I was struggling to figure out why that was. You hit the nail on the head. It's that they sat those two forwards on or around Jackson Ewell, so he never really had any time on the ball. And I think even when he would get it into his feet, there was a hesitancy to try to turn with it for the fear that like he could easily be dispossessed. He wasn't sure what was behind him or how far away his other midfielders were. So I think even when he would get the ball, it tended to be a back pass or a lateral pass out wide. And then with Lopez and Flores sitting on uh, Legette and McKenney, I think what the United States was trying to do, was expecting to be able to do, was to have more space to kind of thread the needle, find passes, have some quick little passing sequences that would advance the ball further up the field, and then they could commit numbers or would already have numbers committed high up, and then they could sort of uh, find additional combinations from there. But when Yule is covered and the U.S. isn't able to sort of quickly move the ball through the middle – those advancing central midfielders are routinely now 20, 30, sometimes 40 yards away from Jackson Ewell when he's on the ball, or when the center backs are on the ball. And you're not really ever going to be able to play the ball in short of a low driven ball into feet that routinely is going to be contested or pop up or cause 50-50s. And so I think right there, it necessitated the U.S. trying different things, be that uh, Leggett going wide and Pulisic coming central or even McKinney dropping deeper ideally to create an overload, but then he would just be followed. And it seemed like Honduras did a very good job of, even when the U.S. tried to change it up, adjusting what they were doing defensively to nullify some of those changes. Yeah, and I, I like I like what you're talking about there, Taylor, with 
going through the different ways that the U.S. had to adjust their game plan to to move the ball into central spaces. And I want to get back to that, but I do want to say up front here. I guess we're not up front. We're about ten minutes in, but you get the idea. The U.S. did <laughs> create. The, the U.S. did create some stuff in the first 20, 30 yes. minutes. They were, I would say, they were the dominant team for the first twenty minutes of this game. They held possession. Yeah. They pinned Honduras back really well. There were still these little problems. The ball moved too slowly. Uh, Sebastian Legette, I had down in my notes, he oftentimes would receive the ball instead of on the half turn. He would receive the ball with his back to goal, even if there's no one behind him. Take a touch, Mm -hmm. take a second, and then play the ball. And by then, Honduras could organize. So there there were issues in the first 20 minutes for the U.S. I'm not saying there weren't. But Reyna has that great chance in the 10th minute that comes off of that Mm right-sided combination play with McKenney and Dest, and then then Reyna, he gets in the box and shoots wide left. Christian Pulisic plays this lovely, beautiful slip ball into Sebastian Legette in the box in the 15th minute. Legette then tries to cut the ball back to Sargent, and the ball gets cut out. But it's a great chance. 30th minute, Anthony Robinson whips across into Josh Sargent, who moves really well Mm -hmm. in the box, gets his head on it, almost scores. The the Honduran keeper makes a great save. So there are these moments where the U.S. do well. In the attack. And I don't want to just throw those aside and say, ah, oh, that doesn't matter. Because the U.S. was balling in yeah. that first 20, 30 minutes, Taylor. And, and Joe, I think this is where it's like, you're, abs- you're once again, you are correct, and I would agree. And I think it's, it's the difficult idea of establishing a narrative for this game. Yeah. Because I, I'm with you that the United States, like, I think at one point the commentators were again saying, like, oh, like, uh, Honduras have looked the stronger team, have had the better chances. And I think that was after the U.S. had, like, just had two clear-cut chances <laughs> that they probably should have taken better. And so I think where I ended up in that first half and the reason why I went from feeling more pessimistic about what I saw to, on the rewatch, feeling more positive is exactly what you mentioned. There were more opportunities than I remembered. And I think the interesting thing was a lot of those opportunities were from varied locations. So as you mentioned, one of them is Anthony Robinson bending a ball in for Sargent, who gets ahead to it but can't put it, put it on frame. Another one is the U.S. counterpressing, winning the ball back and quickly countering attack. Again, there's a shot. It's not an ending up in the back of the net, but they're still creating chances. The The big one was the that's been sp- uh, pointed out many times on Twitter was the sort of long, driven diagonal that somehow gets through to Gio Reyna, oh. and that is the U.S. taking advantage of Honduras is shape because when they were set up in that mid block, it was a four four two. But at times it looked like a four four two empty bucket, which yeah. is you've got those kind of two. For people who don't know, you've got like the two central midfielders a little bit deeper, the two wide midfielders a little bit further up, and then the two uh, forwards. So there's this kind of space in the middle. And what that does theoretically is if you can drag some people out of position, like say that left back, uh, which is exactly what Weston McKenney does. He makes an interior run, left back follows him, and now. Now, because the wide midfielder is further up the field, whoever's on that right side, and in the opening half, it was Gio Reyna for like the first 15 to 20 minutes, he is now wide open. And the U.S. found that diagonal. John Brooks picks him out, gets that ball to him. And I think when that worked, they kept trying it. And so then... I saw four or five different moments when they went for that same ball and it was overhit. And Joe, I think you pointed out maybe that's altitude, but I think that's again where I go back to. I saw a lot of positive buildup and positive uh, approaches and different approaches. Sometimes it was 1v1s. Sometimes it was attempts at quick passing through the middle. Sometimes it was long balls in. But I didn't see enough regularity or them consistently pulling it off, honestly, until the second half, just before they scored the goal. And we'll talk more about that goal later. Where were you in terms of, as you were saying, you were more maybe positive about the chances they were getting. We don't want to just write those off. What did you think was more consistently working, if not like 100 percent working every time? I think the U.S. really did adapt fairly well in the first half to Honduras's slightly more man-oriented defending, right? We talked about it in mm-hmm. midfield with Flores on Sebastian Legette. Even along the back line, that would happen. Figueroa sometimes would step with Sargent as he would drop in. And you could see Honduras's intent to still, intent to still defend in a 4-4-2 block, but they would shift and move. And sometimes it would look like five at the back, and other times it would look like three at the back as a, a center back steps forward. It's, it's fluid, right? And soccer is fluid. I think the U.S. recognized that. And tweak their positioning a little bit to to be able to exploit it better. And what I mean by that is, especially on that left side, Leggett would vacate space and he would he would make his runs forward. And Christian Pulisic was oftentimes really wide. It, I think I kind of forgot about this as I watched the game the first time because he did spend so much time as just a straight up central midfielder as the game wore on. Yep. But in the first 15, 20, 30 minutes, he spent a lot of time with his with his heels on the chalk out wide on that left side or even on the right side in certain moments. And he would receive the ball wide after Leggett 
Jets cleared out. And at that point, it almost becomes like a basketball isolation play. The, the U.S. has cleared out the middle. They, they've run their runners through the paint. They've shifted the defense to the other side. And now Christian Pulisic can go 1v1 with some poor right back or right-sided midfielder, drive into the middle, and then make things happen. I thought that worked really well. There were, there were moments where we saw it over and over again within just a few minutes in a very short time span. The issue was, though, Honduras would either foul Christian Pulisic, which is a totally valid strategy mm-hmm. and something that I think I'd have <laughs> to do if I could ever catch him. So th- they would either foul him or... The U.S. was sluggish with their off-ball movement. And that, that was my biggest takeaway watching this yeah. game back. Christian Pulisic could do some great things with the ball, but the pieces around him either weren't moving or weren't moving in the right moments. And I, I think that's a big problem, not just with Pulisic, but really extending it over lots of different moments in this game from, from various different U.S. players. The timing was off. They looked out of sync, which made it really hard for them to break down this compact block. Joe, you're on a bit of a roll here, so I want to continue it. Who are the players that you would have liked to see more movement from? Uh, Weston McKinney is a big one. And it's hard because I think he actually moves well on the goal sequence. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't get that without his positioning, at least, and then getting on the end of that pass from John Brooks. But there are situations in this first half where Weston McKinney is, is stagnant. And, and he's not moving quickly enough as the play is developing around him. The U.S. were frequently running this up, back, and through combination, which is, uh, I'm trying to, tr- to lay this out in my head, they'd oftentimes have John Brooks or Mark McKenzie, or even Jackson Ewell, play the ball into a dropping Josh Sargent. And that pass from the center back of the six up to the nine, that's the up. Then Josh Sargent would play the ball back. He'd just lay it off with his first touch, most often to Jackson Ewell. So that's the up and the back. And then the through is supposed to be a runner off the ball, like that third man moving and oftentimes running in behind, and you can play that through ball. And the U.S. was trying to do that over and over and over again because they couldn't play through midfield. That was a big pattern for them, and it's good on paper, but you can't have that pattern if you don't have the through runner, if you don't have that player off the ball working in behind and timing his run well. And that's not specifically applying to this Polisic driving inside situation, but it's another example. McKenney oftentimes was too slow to react to the through movement. And I think I saw that several times in the first half and extending into the second half as well. That's really interesting because I think like there will be players who come out of this game and the general narrative will be not good enough. We've seen enough. We got to move on. We got to try other people. I think Jackson Ewell will be one of those. And he is a player who I think if you're putting into positives and negatives for the evening, I would put him in the negative column. So it's interesting to hear that maybe some of the things that I am putting on him might be attributable to a lack of movement and options around him. And I think that's probably fair. I liked what I saw from Weston McKinney. The reason why when I went back, I found him to be a more positive influence is because, as I mentioned, him dropping in and trying to give the center backs annual when he was on the ball more options or at the very least pull that uh, midfielder, usually Lopez, pull him out. And then that would have opened up space for other runners. And I think maybe that's where I give him a little bit of leeway for then not making that third man run sure. when it is Yule getting the drop from Sargent is because if he's already come back 20 yards to try to show, I think I can forgive him a little bit for not immediately switching into attack mode. That said, it is something you would like to see him do is be able to kind of Like if you're thinking of his game as being like certain switches being on and certain switches being off based on what he's being asked to do, that is one that I wouldn't have minded seeing him switch on a little bit sooner, though, as you already pointed out, he is heavily involved in that goal. We'll talk about that later for the for the second time of the show. I mentioned that. (laughs) Well, Well, Taylor, you will, though, Taylor, sorry to jump in really quick. I know I'm I'm kind of bashing Weston McKinney, but he had one of the best runs in behind in this entire game, a really weird moment in that second half. Giorena has the ball on the right side and he slips Weston McKenney in behind and Reina's fouled as he releases the ball. And Weston McKenney yeah. has time mm-hmm. to get on the ball in the box in a great spot with runners to his left in the middle of the box. And the referee whistles the play dead. He, he doesn't play on. He doesn't give that advantage to Gio Reyna. So I, I will say that play could have resulted in a real chance for the U.S. And Weston McKenney might look even better as a result of that run. So he did do some things well off the ball. I'm not trying to say yeah. that. But there are specific moments I can point to where we, we don't see that from him. Yeah. So two things there. One, is that the one where Reyna plays it down the line and then gets kind of crunched, knocked out of bounds? So just a minor note, but uh, if people have a chance to go back and and watch that moment, uh, the facilitating incident would be Christian Pulisic having a bullet of a pass driven at him. And he does that almost magical, I don't know how you do it, turn where you sort of receive it. I think he receives it with his right instep. 
and at the same time is turning. So he basically like kills the ball dead, but then the momentum of his foot as he's turning brings the ball with him. So then it's one fluid motion and suddenly he's turned, is going the other way, and the ball is out in front. And that completely opens up Honduras. That one moment of skill yeah. when they think, oh, based based on what's been happening in this game, he's going to settle the ball or he's going to play it backwards. He's going to play it lateral. So we can just step to him. He'll lay it off and then we can adjust what we're doing. And that he has that moment of creativity and turns. Now Honduras is bypassed and they have to scramble. And I think that's why that foul takes place. Because you're right. If that foul doesn't happen, I think it is the kind of domino effect. And then who knows if that ends up being a goal. But it's those moments of ingenuity that I think made the difference and could have made even more of a difference which then sends me back to a player we've been talking about off and on, Jackson Yule. Because you mentioned he has those front, the front two from Honduras sitting on him. And I think initially I was of the mind of like, he needs to move more. But I understand why he can't, because if he vacates that space in the middle, he is supposed to be the player that's there in case of there's a counterattack. He needs to be there just because you want numbers in the middle, even if it's only one player. And so he can't really move that much what i think he can do is just play faster and 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 joe you you spoke to this earlier but i thought he was like not the worst defender but the one that i noticed most often needing an extra touch and taking another touch or settling it and the one i sent you was i think in the 11th minute there's a sort of loose ball that goes back to him he che- he uses his chest to settle it then he takes a touch and then i think realizes oh i don't have options and tries to figure something out i think tries to cut it back and ends up getting dispossessed and why that stood out to me is because if that is tyler adams That is literally his job at RB Leipzig is to know everything that's happening around him before that ball is even close to him so that he has already made his decision what he's going to do and does it very quickly. And there is zero doubt in my mind that if that's Tyler Adams, he does not get caught in possession because he takes a touch and that chest settle, instead of it being right down into his feet, is probably in the direction he wants to move with the ball or is in the direction that he wants to pretend to be going to then cut back to open up space. But that sort of on-the-ball decision-making and the quickness of that decision-making, I thought, was a thing this evening that I kept going back to with Jackson Ewell as why, again, I think Tyler Adams is the most important player to this team right now. Yeah, I totally agree with you. In that moment in the 11th minute, I think your analysis is spot on. I had one in the 56th minute from Jackson Ewell. The U.S. is in possession kind of on their left side. And Jackson Ewell receives the ball, and he doesn't check his shoulder. And and that's okay sometimes. You always want to be checking your shoulder, but it's not always the most costly thing if you don't in certain situations. In this moment, though, it, it was genuinely costly because if he had checked his shoulder, he would have seen Gio Reyna jumping up and down. I imagine he's yelling for the ball. I can't hear him, uh, but I imagine <laughs> um, he's yelling. He's gesticulating. If, yeah, given his Gio. past behavior, yeah. <laughs> he is definitely yelling for the ball. So we're just going to say Gio Reyna's yelling for the ball, jumping up and down, waving his yep. arms, and he's wide open in this central pocket that would have broken Honduras's defense and allowed the U.S. to transition quickly into the attacking half. But Jackson Ewell doesn't see him. And if that's Tyler Adams, Taylor, to be honest with you, I might give him a pass because we kind of know that Tyler Adams' game is not all about this passing movement offensive style. And yeah, he he probably works out of that 11th minute sequence a little bit better than Yule. But in this moment, Jackson Yule is here to make this pass. He's here to connect. If he's not doing that, what what is he here to do? What is he here to yep. accomplish in midfield if he's not providing this little extra boost in possession. I mean, that's the whole argument that I've made in the past for why, theoretically, you use a Jackson Yule type six, is you need him to break the game open in certain moments. If he's being marked out of the game for 80% of it, you need him to be very effective in that last 20%. And Jackson Yule just wasn't effective in that 20% tonight. Here is the, I would say, silver lining uh, for Jackson Ewell being in this team. And maybe it's grasping at straws. I don't think it is, but I'm going to try to build an argument here. I would say that this is a sign of Greg Berhalter's intent, that we didn't get Kellen Acosta starting. We didn't see rotation there. We didn't see Eunice Musa trying something different or Weston McKinney as the number six or even Mark McKenzie stepping into midfield, which I think he sort of did later on in the game. What we saw was Greg Berhalter going with the player who has the most experience in that role in this team that is fit. 
And in a game that is a competitive fixture that could get them into a final, it's the Nations League, and people can disparage that if they so choose. But it's still a competitive CONCACAF game that he set up his team the best he could to win. And what he did was put the player that he thinks has the most reps and the most experience in that role. He didn't gamble. He didn't try something completely different to roll the dice and see what happened. And that does matter to me, is that it wasn't just sort of, ah, let's see if this happens. Let's see what what happens here. Let's try this. It felt like... We, again, see the idea of Greg Berhalter as a coach who will try different things in friendlies and truly treats friendlies as opportunities to experiment and try different things or get ready for upcoming competitions. But then when those competitions begin, he's going with the players that he trusts to get the job done. And I think the important thing there for me is that even if they don't get the job done on the night, there's no way Jackson Yule is just done with the national team. That's not how Burhalter works, I don't think. But what it does do is allow us to, again, see the strengths in his game, the weaknesses in his game, the shortcomings that were on display this evening. And then we can see what Burhalter does to fine-tune that or if he does rotate from here on out. But I feel like there is that still there, there is that process in place that we haven't always had with other coaches. And it does make me feel just happy that in a game that they wanted to win that was competitive, you saw some fights. Certainly it could have been a better game. Certainly there could have been more fight and more substitutions and more changes. But I think that they really went for it and Berhalter sort of stuck with the players that he thought could get it done. I don't know. It it, it means something to me, but I can't tell if I'm just grasping at straws, Joe. Well, and we we look at games from an outsider's perspective because we have to, right? But I do think there's something to be said for Berhalter's approach to demand management, right? And, and being in that group, you can almost respect, and yeah. I'm not saying I necessarily agree with the decision, or it's easy for us to say this in hindsight now, but I, I think there's a certain respect that you can garner from your group by making challenging decisions, right? And people on the outside That's can true. agree or disagree, and a lot of people are going to disagree. And especially you and I, after diving into this game and watching it twice, there are lots of yeah. things that we say, wow, that could have been a lot better, right? I'm not saying yep. that any of that isn't true, but I can see sort of what you're saying, Taylor, in terms of the U.S. went out there with players that they they knew were limited in certain areas, but also skilled in other areas, and they tried to win with the group that they had. And, and there's value in that in a certain kind of twisted sense. Yeah, I think it's just, it's just if we went out there with Yunus Musa as a six and he looked like a guy who hasn't really played as a number six and maybe did it a little bit in training and now they're going to try to see what happens and he looked bad, that, number one, makes it seem like Yunus Musa can't handle this responsibility. But number two, to me, it just shows like, yeah, they're just kind of trying things to see what works, which says to me there isn't as much of a clear idea about what is working. And so uh, my hope would be that we see adjustments for the final and we'll get to what we want to see uh, in that final later on but I think I just I saw things tonight that on, upon rewatch felt like oh they were starting to identify vulnerabilities and opportunities and they were starting to try to create overloads to then create like opportunities on the opposite side and then find that switch more consistently and I felt like there were some problems being solved and I think to move into the second half a little bit I think a big reason why there wasn't more of a reaction from the United States in the second half is that Honduras really did a good job of slowing down the tempo. And a good job is also an infuriating job if you're a fan of the U.S. national team. And I really was frustrated by the end of this one with how many times they broke up play. And it wasn't just the normal CONCACAF, oh, like there's cramp, I'm going to like milk a couple more minutes. What I felt like it was, and I tweeted this uh, like, somewhat early in the second half and then just kind of kept nodding my head to my own tweet because I guess I'm <laughs> Kanye who listens to his own music. But it was the idea that like almost any time in the second half, the U.S. would get a shot or would get numbers forward or would start to string some passes together. A hunter and player went down or there was a, a, a foul that then had to be disputed and debated and it slowed everything down. And that felt so deliberate to me of we don't want to let them get into any attacking rhythm. It reminded me almost of in basketball when there's like a six point swing and suddenly there's a timeout and it's like we got to kill this this energy right now. Even if it's like a like a, a quick turnover in a basket, it's like, nope, nope, we're calling timeout like we do not want to let them like heat up at all. And that felt like what Honduras did very effectively 
if not frustratingly in the second half. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Taylor. I saw that tweet from you, and I completely agree with it then, and I completely agreed with it then, and it holds up now. <laughs> I went back through and counted on rewatch, and I texted you this already, but yeah. I went back through and counted on rewatch the amount of time that Honduran players were down with injuries, and, and maybe one or two of them were, were real injuries. Another one or two of them, at least, players climbed onto the stretchers on their own, and then at least one guy came back onto the field. So <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was one minute for Figueroa, one minute for Rodriguez, two minutes for Rivas, two minutes, 30 seconds for Pereira, one minute, 30 seconds for Rivas, and one minute for Lozano for a total of nine minutes, which is, to do some quick math, Taylor, one-fifth of a 45-minute half. One-fifth oh of the God. half Honduras spent wasting time with injuries. That doesn't even include the, the seconds that Albert Elise is holding the ball away from Jackson Yule with his hands mm-hmm. and then tosses it back. Yep. It doesn't include all of those little moments or the subs. So that's nine minutes of just time spent on the ground or stretching, quote-unquote, players off the field. That's some <laughs> elite-level concacafing to take up 20% of a mm-hmm. half. Honestly, my hat's off to you, Honduras. That is just top, top-notch work. I So I agree with all of that, especially from a gamesmanship standpoint. And this is where, though, I go back to it being a more positive performance than I thought it was. Because, again, removing the, like, oh, they could easily win this one, they could comfortably win this one, I'm removing that mentality and seeing this for what it was, which was a hard-fought game with a team that is still kind of learning how to play together against a team that is doing the same thing but is happy to be more defensive and frustrating – This, again, was the reason to me why the Nations League is a necessary thing for the United States and for lots of other CONCACAF countries, but especially the U.S. in this case, because this felt like a World Cup qualifier at times in terms of a CONCACAF opponent slowing things down, frustrating the United States, and being fully aware that the pressure is on the U.S., especially with the game going to automatic penalties. There's an awareness that the U.S. is going to start to feel the pressure, and they're going to start to try more stuff, and they're going to get more frustrated. They're going to commit more numbers forward, and that's going to open up space and opportunities for Honduras, who, especially in the second half, were more than content to hit on the break and look to hit on the break early and often, especially with Albert Elise, which was no surprise. But when the United States did start to move numbers forward, that became more of a threat. And I was sort of consistently worried about them finding their way to get the go-ahead goal. And so for the U.S. to advance to the final of an official competition playing against a team that was conca-caffing like crazy, but still found a way to get a result, didn't panic, didn't get unnecessary cards, didn't cough the ball up cheaply in the final 10 minutes, but instead found a a thing that I think worked and then found a way to drill down on it such that they ended up getting a goal. That's what you want to see. It's why you play these games. It's a young U.S. team, the second youngest ever is what they kept repeating, finding a way to get a result against a good CONCACAF opponent and make it to the final of a competition. I mean, that that, that is ideal CONCACAF preparation. Yeah, it is. And Greg Berhalter, I just skimmed through some of his post-match comments. He talked about how this game was perfect for them. This is a game that they needed to prepare them for what's coming up in September. And I don't disagree with that. I think I think that's very true. It's it wasn't as pretty as I wanted it to be, and I'm sure many other folks wanted it to mm-hmm. be. But there's definitely an argument to be made that says, wow, this is a good game to prepare you for hard away, especially CONCACAF qualifiers. The second half of this game, to me, felt like a cross between a World Cup qualifier and a friendly. In that, you have all the subs. Yeah. Right now, we have five subs in normal games, which is just one away from the, the six-sub international friendly rule. And so you have all the subs and just the second half of friendlies oftentimes becomes so choppy because there's personnel changes and, and the roster looks half as different as it did at the beginning of the, the, the starting 11 looks half as different as it did in the, at the opening kickoff. It just is so choppy and so it just lacks any sort of fluidity. And that certainly hurt the U.S. in this game. Another thing that hurt the U.S. in that second half, though, they were just sloppy. With the ball. There are two moments specifically that stood out to me. Serginho Dest uh, is trying to drive the ball forward and play the ball up to Josh Sargent, I believe, in the 53rd minute. And uh, it's incomplete. And it's either on Sargent for not moving quickly enough. I tend to think it's on Dest for forcing that ball a little bit. But either way, the U.S. lose the ball. And then Honduras has a chance to counter. And then one minute later, Christian Pulisic is trying to drive the ball forward and he loses the ball. That's the 54th minute. Mm -hmm. It's hard to generate consistent possession. And it's even harder to prevent Honduras from concacafing when you can't keep the ball. And the U.S. had problems keeping the ball just because they they were careless with it at the opening stages of that second half. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's where I think to go back and like, or maybe combine the conversations we've already had, that's where I think 
rededicating yourself to the style of play you want to be utilizing is important there because I do think in the second half, especially we saw more, okay, I'm going to try something. I'm going to try to create something. And on an individual level, sometimes that worked more often than not, it did not. But the moments when you did have somebody drift over and then you would have a three V one or a three V two. And there was a quick passing sequence. The U S showed they can do that. And they more often than not, were able to play through whatever Honduras were doing defensively. And then it was, okay, what happens next? And as soon as the U S got within, I'd say 30 to 40 yards of the Honduras goal, it went oftentimes into tunnel vision again. And it was, I'm going to take somebody on one V one. And I saw Serginho Dest do that a couple of different times, especially in the first half. I think he has one that he, probably has two or three other passing options and instead tries to dribble to the end line and I think loses the ball and Honduras go the other way. But as you said, there was one of those from Pulisic. There was one of those from Sargent. There was certainly one of those from Reyna. And it, when the U.S. focused in on the game plan, moving the ball quickly and not getting caught and not putting their foot on it and not slowing it down, they kept pulling Honduras around and moving Honduras around. And no, it didn't lead to very good clear-cut chances every minute or two. But what it did do was just make Honduras exert energy. They had to run. There's a reason why they burned all their subs by, like, the 75th minute. Before, I think before the U.S. had made a single one. It's And I think the more you keep them running, the more tired they're going to get, the more they're going to get sloppy, and the more chances that will be presented. But as soon as you're going route one, trying to take them on 1v1, it, it becomes, like, just, like, a slugfest as opposed to a chess game. And... That's when anybody can win a slugfest with one lucky punch. It became a slugfest in terms of that tunnel vision on the dribble and players saying, all right, this is me. I'm going to take this guy on. And then also in terms of crossing the ball in from out wide. I think the U.S. became overly reliant yeah. on crosses as the second half wore on. And what's worse is they became overly reliant on crosses as the, the movement without, uh, movement around the, the crossing players and even the movement in the box almost came to a halt. Right, the U.S. would have the ball out wide. I have this moment in the 60th minute. Christian Pulisic's on the ball on the left side, and, and Sebastian Legette and Anthony Robinson are right next to him and around him, in positions theoretically to be moving and making runs and pulling players apart oh, yeah. and getting into that Man City zone. But they just stand there like they're like they're me and you sitting at home watching and waiting to see what Christian Pulisic's going to do. And that's just one moment. But there are a handful of other moments like that in the second half. So the U.S. almost stopped moving in certain moments outside the box. And then in the box as well, again, the off-ball movement wasn't super crisp. There were moments where Josh Sargent wasn't making those decisive runs. And that's been a knock on his game for a long time now. And we're not really seeing that development, or at least we didn't in this game. Uh, Christian Pulisic even had moments where he wasn't moving a whole lot. Weston McKinney, again, just this lack of movement as the second half wore on. And thankfully for the U.S., they kind of shook themselves out of that, whether that was because of the late subs or just because they actually found a moment where they could play a little bit. But the lead-up to the goal, with the goal sequence and that ball in from John Brooks, that was good soccer. That soccer that Greg Berhalter is trying to get this team to play consistently. It had off-ball movement. It had good positioning. It had possession where you're moving the ball from outside to inside. That move checked a lot of the boxes, but so many of the, uh, of the U.S.'s other movements in the second half didn't check those boxes. So let's stay on the positive for a moment, because I do want to talk about the goal. Obviously, Jordan Sibachu with the, the diving header gets the goal. Big celebrations. I love that he ran straight to Daryl DK and they hugged each other <laughs> and then the whole team joined in. The thing that I also really loved, uh, Joe Lowry, was it's a great ball from John Brooks, but a player that you and I have talked about many times, I'm going to say, is heavily involved in this goal, though he won't get that much credit for it. It's Brendan Aaron. Oh, yeah. And the reason why I want to point this out is because uh, I, I don't think I sent you this one, Joe. That goal is in the 89th minute. In the 82nd minute, yep, there is down. a sequence. <laughs> yep. That is almost the blueprint for the goal. It's almost the exact same thing. It's a little deeper from John Brooks, but it's another ball to the exact same spot. This time it's Brendan Aronson who goes for the exact same type of header. I can't remember if he just underhits it a little bit or can't get as good a contact or yeah. if there's just not as many runners in the box. I think it's a combination of those three things. But it's really, really similar. And I say that that's important, not just because, like, oh, Brandon Aronson made that run. It's because then in the 89th minute when the goal happens, Brandon Aronson is in that exact same position uh, and is, is being tracked by, I think, Alvarado at this point. Except this time, instead of staying where he is and kind of staying static, he makes an interior run. Alvarado follows him. And it's really a credit to John Brooks because I'm not sure Weston McKinney is even aware of how open he is. <laughs> and it's basically he realizes, oh, Brooks is hitting me this ball. And then he makes the run. And then he puts that header in. Aronson does a good job to leave. 
But I thought Aronson sort of being there for that first ball in and then making a run to open up space for McKenney. It's it's little things, but it's the impact you want from a player who comes on, especially a young player coming on and having that degree of an impact. Even if it's small, to me it stands big because it's not panicking in those final moments and just trying to create something because we got to win this game. It's playing as a teammate and making runs and being aware of the situation, and then the U.S. scores as a result. I thought Aronson was awesome off the bench, and I love that you highlighted yep. that moment. He's willing. He he is one of the few guys on this team that I see consistently willing to make those runs in behind. Right, he will exploit that space and play a little bit more direct to stretch Honduras or whoever vertically. Because the U.S. tried to stretch Honduras horizontally a whole lot. They they tried to hit some of those diagonal switches. They usually didn't come off. They tried to move the ball systematically, and oftentimes it was too slow. But Aronson's a guy, you bring him in off the bench, and he comes on in the 78th minute along with Reggie Cannon and Siba Chu. I think that's way too late, to be honest with you, Taylor. I think they, they should have come on sooner. I know Baralter said after the game, we felt like the goal was coming with the group that we had out there, and, and fair play to him. That's, that's his decision to make. But when Aronson does eventually come on, I think he helps change that game because exactly of what you just said, Taylor. That moment in the 82nd minute where he is willing to stretch the line. And then again in the 89th minute on the goal, he is willing to be in that same spot and ready to make a similar run. He He's just a, a player unlike Christian Pulisic or Gio Reyna in that he's, he's able to play more direct. And that has so much value to the U.S. And then, as we've talked about many times, he has that defensive scrappiness that yeah. he will work back, and even if he's not winning the ball, it's just so important for a team that want to counterattack. If he sprints back 20 yards and just makes that that wide, like if it's the fullback and makes them cut back and play the ball central or makes them play a lateral pass, or ideally makes them like concede possession by just hoofing the ball up the field, like that is what you want. That's the defensive work you need, and I think we saw that again from Brendan Aronson. Uh, I, I thought he had a very solid game, even if it was only limited minutes, but I shouldn't take away from an inch perfect ball from John Brooks uh, for the MLS assist. Oh yeah, uh, to, to give credit where it's due, and also you know, <laughs> little name recognition. Uh, a great, a great header from Weston McKinney, and then just like calm in front of goal from Sibachu. It's it's not the world's most difficult goal, but I think for it to be a diving header that he puts on frame and puts it in the corner and makes sure it goes in. That's what you need from a forward when they sub on. But I think also, as Joe, Joe, I think you already mentioned, his movement when he comes on and and he does link up, I think, a little bit more consistently and just seems calmer on the ball than Sargent was. I felt like with Sargent, we still saw some of those pop-ups, a few of those loose controls. He does have a few dropbacks to Jackson Ewell that I missed on first viewing. But I think overall, I found Sibachu to be a more uh effective conduit to US attacks. I felt like honestly this was the most Josh Sargent game I've seen from Josh Sargent in a US jersey. <laughs> That's a t-shirt right there. Maybe maybe we can make that happen. Oh my gosh. Cuz you you're right Taylor. Sargent had he did have some positive moments in the first half dropping in and, and linking mm-hmm. play, but as I mentioned earlier, the up back and through combinations weren't there and that wasn't always his fault. But then there are other moments where I don't think his movement was timed correctly. There was a sequence in the first half, mm-hmm. right at the end of the first half, where John Brooks is trying to play Sargent the ball and, and cue that up back and through combination. And I think John Brooks point, it's a little hard to tell on the broadcast, yep. but I think he points yep. where he wants Sargent to go. Sargent doesn't recognize it. John Brooks ends up playing that ball anyway. It's a turnover. Mm-hmm. that It looks like John Brooks just played a bad ball, but I don't think that's the issue. I think it's the communication and ultimately Sargent's movement that lets him down. And then you have all, all of his lack of movement in the box that I've already talked about. But then, Taylor, you do have the good pressing from Josh Sargent that I feel like we see pretty consistently. Yeah, he had that error in his pursuit angle in the Switzerland game that you were very wise to point out on our last USMNT show. But he runs like heck to to win the ball back, to, to chase the ball down, and to make up for his own mistakes at times. I just left this game feeling like, man, I want Josh Sargent to get out of Werder Bremen. Right. Because See, that's, it, yeah. it's time. Mm-hmm. It's time for him. And maybe there's a coach that comes in there that wants him to play with the ball in the second Bundesliga. And if that happens, that's OK with me, too. But I just would really like to see him work at a club day in and day out. That's going to help him refine his movement, because clearly he can't consistently improve in the short little USMNT camps that he has. It's not enough for him to be in here five times a year for, you know, eight weeks of the year, or even less. And yeah. he can't work on that skill enough in that time to be as effective as I think the U.S. needs that number nine to be in those little moments. Yeah, and and that's why I'm saying like this was his most Josh Sargent game to me because he he has those like issues that we've already talked about, so I won't go into them again when it comes to like attacking play. 
but also the work rate is just constant and he's running everywhere. And even when there's a 50-50 ball, it's not just working back to win it back, like to do the defensive job, but it's, it's winning the ball and driving forward with it. It's, it's trying to fight for every single thing. And I think he embodied that fighting spirit that we want to see from the U.S., including when he heads the ball off the line like that's that's just effort that's energy that's trying it's trying to do everything you can but where like I'm trying to choose my words carefully here but what I also saw from him was like when the situation requires him to run that person down run into space go charging into that one make sure you get like when it's work hard he can do it Honestly, sometimes when it's work smart, that's where I feel like I see him not be quite as sharp. And it's not even that he's poor. It's not even that he can't do it. It's just that the thing we've talked about before, at this level, when you're trying to go up against a team that are now at this point very defensive and trying to slow the game down, you can't slow it down and you can't delay. And if there's a half second, a whole second, a two second delay between, oh, I need to check two and actually making that run, it's the difference between... Being there and receiving the ball and having because you've made a check away, check two sprint, you've opened up a couple yards and now you can turn on the ball and go forward with it. And now Honduras have to react. But if it's, oh, right, I need to check and now I'm getting there, but I kind of popped up and I wasn't able to control it. And now even when I got it under control, I had to play it backwards because there's a player right on my back. It's just it's just a difference maker. And and that is where Sibachu comes on. And I think just I saw him control the ball. I saw him bring it down on one occasion. I saw him turn with it and try to distribute sort of forward laterally. And and that just stood out to me is like I, I need Josh Sargent to develop, enhance that side of his game. And you're right. It probably doesn't happen until he's playing for a team that have more possession and more sustained attacks. And then he's working on making smart, incisive attacking runs as opposed to having to work really hard to do the defensive job. Taylor, do you think Josh Sargent starts against Mexico? I don't think he should. I think we should see what Sibachu can do because short of changing things up to better facilitate his game, maybe it's a matter of more reps make him better. But I think that is a moment where I wouldn't mind seeing what Sibachu does in this high-pressure situation. I'm not sure who it's going to be because I'm not tracking the game right now, but it will be either Costa Rica or Mexico, who are both very good. And and I think that is a roll of the dice I'm okay with, is to see, hey, he scored a goal, he's got the kind of hot hand, he created something, let's let him roll and continue if he can. And then maybe it's Josh Sargent who gets to be the impact sub and come in with fresh legs and charge some people down and try to create in that second half. I don't think that's the worst thing. That is a change I'm okay with. I have a question for you about who should start the next game. But, Joe, where are you on Sargent starting next game? Yeah, I wouldn't be mad at seeing Sibachu get a look from the start of a game. And I know we saw him start against Northern Ireland, and I, I don't think he did a ton in that game back in March. But I think this could be a good opportunity for him to do that. I won't be mad yep. either way, right? I don't think there's still that much of a difference between Sibachu and Sargent. They do some different things, and so it's even hard to compare them at times. But... I, I certainly wouldn't be shocked if we see a change to that number nine spot. And then the other question I had for you, I'm not sure how this would work because of the way Burhalter wants them to play or those two roles to, to function. But what do you think of the idea of Pulisic starting maybe more centrally, maybe for Sebastian Legette and then Brendan Aronson starting in that left wing spot or even having them sort of rotate, but both of them start instead of it being Pulisic and Legette again? Against a team that's not Costa Rica or Mexico, I think I'd be down for that. And we've kind of seen it in the past with Pulisic starting as a an, as an number eight on that left side, rotating with Paul Ariola. But man, mm-hmm. with how the U.S. at times were played through against Honduras on the break, I don't think I want Christian Pulisic defending in front of maybe Jack Sneal or even Kellen Acosta on that left side against mm-hmm. a, a Mexican counterattack or against Brian Ruiz finding space in the pocket and driving forward. That seems scary to me. I think it would be fun to watch in attack, but I think you sacrifice too much defensively. I really just want to see Yunus Musa get a start. Like that was, a, a midfield yeah, trio <laughs> of Kellen Acosta, Weston McKenney, and Yunus Musa, I think would have, hindsight again, would have suited the U.S. better in yep. this game. And I mm-hmm. really think having that more mobile group of players, Musa's more mobile than Leggett, and Acosta's more mobile than Ewell. I think that would be a, a much more effective combination for whoever the U.S. is facing in the final. 
And I think we, we would both agree that if Tyler Adams is like above oh, yeah. 80% yeah. fit, I'm also Forget okay with him starting. Yeah, yeah please. <laughs> please. Please. Uh, yeah, so I, I think I, I would be okay with Tyler Adams starting. If he's mostly okay to go, I would be okay with – I would be okay, just to be very clear, with Kellen Acosta starting if Tyler Adams can't go. And I'm with you. I wouldn't mind seeing Eunice Musa in that number 10 spot. If we don't see that, if we see almost the exact same lineup, I think – that's still not the worst thing because I think it goes back to Burhalter wanting to see, okay, we've learned we've learned some things from this game, and now how do we carry forward carry them forward to the next game? And if it's being treated as a learning experience, but also a competitive learning experience, I am okay with that. I'm also okay with most things as long as John Brooks is starting in defense. <laughs> he was, I think, the US's best player on the night. Uh he was, I think my favorite player for what he did defensively, for what he did in the attack, but also he just doesn't really take much trash, man. Like there, there's a few players on that team. Josh Sargent will get scrappy. Uh, Gio Reyna will certainly get scrappy, as we saw when he got in uh, a player's face who took a dive. Albert, Albert Elise then got in Reyna's face, and I love that John Brooks then stepped in and was very like, "What are you doing, man? Like you don't want to do this." And I just I liked John Brooks across the board. I like that even as he was like talking trash in that scrum uh, later on in the game after. Sergeant had just headed the ball off the line. He's like talking trash. He stops to aggressively high five Josh Sargent <laughs> and then goes back to drawing at the Honduran players. I thought just across the board, a, a comprehensive uh, quality performance from John Brooks. One of the things I have in my notes is just God bless John Brooks, right? And that started with, <laughs> yep. with you talked about it, Taylor. We kind of glossed over it, and I nothing we say can do this past justice. So please just go find it. It's on Twitter. Several people posted yep. it. It's this delicious. Line breaking, low <laughs> driven diagonal mm-hmm. on the ground from John Brooks that finds Diorena in the sixth minute. That's kind of the start of John Brooks being this team's playmaker in possession because he really was in this game. We see it on the goal sequence that we've already talked about that little lofted ball into McKenney. It happened seven minutes earlier to Brendan Aronson. He is the best passer on this team, bar none, at least in terms of his ability to progress the ball. He does that yep. so well. But, Taylor, I still like that we have this dichotomy. Well, I don't really like it, but it's the reality. We have this dichotomy with John Brooks of, in the 89th minute, he plays this game-breaking pass that, that's the MLS assist. Mm-hmm. And then about 90 seconds, 120 seconds later, he's getting toasted by Albert Elise back in the U.S.'s own half. <laughs> and, and sure, you, if yeah. I think Greg Velasquez said this on the Scuff podcast, and I want to echo it here. If you're... If you're John Brooks getting toasted mm-hmm. by Albert Elise, really the system has failed you. You haven't failed the yep. system at that point because everyone knows John Brooks' strengths and weaknesses. But I just think that dichotomy, the high to the low in such a short period of time is funny and it's just quintessential John Brooks. Yeah. If you're giving John Brooks an opportunity, a couple seconds to read the play and decide what to do, I feel like he, if he decides to step 90% of the time he makes the right choice and it is that sort of like oh uh, now's the time to win it's like the defender's instinct of like now is the time to step now is the time to try to poke that ball away and that's when he succeeds when you're putting him into like you're transitioning into defense and you're one-on-one with Albert, Albert Elise and you've got to try to make a play otherwise he's going to get behind you <laughs> that is where I get nervous yeah. and you're absolutely right that is more of a system breakdown than a John Brooks breakdown yeah, yeah it is and I don't know I still love what he brings to this team and he's a critical mm-hmm. player one thing that I'm thinking about going into Mexico John or Mexico or Costa Rica I guess John Brooks has played we can a lot look it up at this point yeah. I'll try to find it <laughs> okay sounds good John Brooks has played a lot as ha- in, in this game especially, Christian Pulisic mm-hmm. played almost the entire game into the into the stoppage time in the second half. Giorena's played a lot. I mean, there's a lot of minutes mm-hmm. on these guys' legs from Saturday or Sunday, excuse me, against Switzerland into tonight, Thursday as we're recording. Then again into Sunday. I mean, there, there's just a lot of players. Weston McKinney played this whole game. Legette played this whole game. Mark McKenzie played this whole game after playing, I think, the whole game against Switzerland. Dest played this whole game. Yep. I mean... I wonder what oh, is he, he came out for Miaska, but yeah, he played most of it. Okay, yeah. okay. So what I, I wonder what this team's going to look like fitness wise uh, in that final. It's not going to be easy to cover ground against either one of their prospective opponents. I don't, I don't know. Again, the circles back to Baralter making those subs earlier. It's not just about this game, but in a tournament, you have to be thinking ahead to the next game as well. And I wonder if Baralter did a good enough job of that. So what are there any other takeaways from this game? Any other positives or negatives you wanted to mention? I would say Gio Reyna, I thought, was was pretty positive yeah. overall. Yeah. I think he probably could have scored one or two of those chances that he wasn't able to take. And I think we did see the the youth on display. And again, I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism. I just mean there were moments. There was one, I think you mentioned 
close to it. It was the 59th minute when the U.S. have a good sort of sustained attack. There's good possession, and it ends up with Gio Reyna, I think, inside the 18, but sort of on the right-hand side. He goes for a square cutback pass, and I think he either thinks Weston McKinney's going to hang up and be there to kind of one-time it, or Christian Pulisic will be, but he ends up playing it behind both of them. And that, to me, was a moment, watching it again, where it felt like he, he just sort of, he had a number of different options, and he sort of overthought it rather than knowing what the right thing to do in that moment was. And there were just a few of those moments where I, I felt like he wasn't like playing instinctively I, that that seems to be a criticism I've made a couple times in this show but I think that is just always a thing I want to see as a player sort of just knowing what they need to do we talked about it with Daryl DK at Barnsley that knowing backing yourself to like I'm going to shoot this ball and I'm going to back myself to put it in the back of the net is always better than like oh, I hope I score and I just felt like we saw from from Reyna but a few other players as well a lot of like oh, I hope this works moments as opposed to I am going to make something happen we're going to win this game well and part of that I do think is just a lack of movement around around Reyna or around That's whoever That's it fair. is right That's fair. It, it's it's this is a two things a, a thing can be two things situation too I think we're both mm-hmm piecing together parts of the truth here in terms of of other moments are the things that i maybe wanted to hit at quickly Sergio dest with that blown off sideline in the start of the second half is a, <laughs> is a bit of a problem i don't think physically you're supposed to be able to to contort your body that way to try to make someone seem like they're offside the way <laughs> he's so leaning ridiculous. over is comical but man you yep. got you got to step you got to step Sergio. that that was a a big moment and a big problem. And then Zach Steffen, we just barely touched on it. Yeah. Totally whiffs on that set piece from Honduras in the first mm-hmm. half. And Josh Sargent bails him out. And Steffen, I think consistently when he gets minutes from Man City or even when he plays for the United States, he, he sometimes has just one moment a game. It could be with mm-hmm. his feet or it could be in terms of his positioning, coming off the line, not coming off the line. He just has these moments where he's not, he's not nailing it. He's not getting it right. And he does bail yeah. Dest out to be fair on the moment where Des blows that off sideline. But I have some concerns about Zach Steffen in goal, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that, but I don't see him as the runaway U.S. number one, in, at least in terms of him earning that spot yeah. right now, because there are still these mistakes that it, pop up. It's a little closer than, than I think I thought it yeah. was. And and I'm with you, especially on that on that cross in that he uh, misjudges. It's not just that he, like, is overly ambitious and comes way off his line. It's not just that he doesn't get to the ball. It's that he seems, in my mind, unaware that there's a hunter and player at the back post. I forget who it is, but when he comes out, you can see him almost be like, oh, I'm not going to get this ball. It's a little bit, like, like, like uh, higher up and further away than I thought it was going to be. Like, almost a, like, oh, well, it's going to go out for a corner, and then realizes there's a player there and tries to kind of, like, make a midair play on it. And that is the thing that I found troubling, is, like, as a goalkeeper... It's my assumption that you've got to be able to read everything and try to know where everybody is and where you are in relation to all those people. And to not be aware that there's somebody at the back post, or at least that's how it appeared to me, that was the thing that I was I was uh, more concerned about than I expected to be. Yeah, I think it's Albert Elise at the back post as well. So if there's one that's player there's one player you <laughs> yeah. need to know where they are, it's Albert Elise. So yeah, take that for what it's worth. I think there's room for improvement from Zach Steffen, and that might come from him playing more regularly if he does get a move at some point outside of Manchester to actually get some first team minutes. But yeah, it's it's not it's not perfect from Zach Steffen yet, and that's unfair. That's an unfair standard, but inching closer to that standard would make a lot of people, including myself, feel more comfortable. I agree. I agree with you. I will also uh, add that it is now midnight here on the East Coast. Uh, I would, wouldn't would mind getting into, like, what do we want to see against Mexico, but my reality, I keep saying it's Mexico. It's still nil-nil when last I checked between Mexico and Costa Rica, but I don't really know what either of them is going to do because I haven't watched either, either of their uh, games, depending on who that opponent is. And I think really what we can come away with as an abbreviated preview is essentially that if the personnel are changed, we are okay with that. If it's the same, we are mostly okay with that. Though what we would, that we have things that we would like to see improved, then it's basically just the decision making, the quickness of the passing. And I think just maybe taking a few less risks in uh, unwise situations. But that's kind of like where I am on a very basic level. There's no way like we have to change this. This person has to start. I I think I would very much like Tyler Adams to start, but I I think basically I wouldn't feel comfortable saying like, this is clearly what they have to do. This is clearly how they have to play. Uh, I would just say I would like them to be even sharper and even better in that final. Yeah, there's room for refinement here. I think that's the biggest overarching tactical thing. 
to reiterate, the U.S. did some good things with the ball in this game that we should be encouraged by, but it was inconsistent, and that inconsistency needs to be ironed out. So that's that's the biggest macro thing. I won't riot if if you know Baralter puts. I won't riot at any lineup that Baralter puts out within reason, right? Um, but. I really, really, really think Yunus Musa should start because of the mobility that he provides, because he can play forward quicker in possession than Legette can, based off of this game at least. I, I think Musa needs to start for a number of different reasons, and I'll be I'll be even more sad. I'll put out another tweet about how I'm sad if Yunus Musa doesn't start. So there you go, Greg. That's that's my ultimatum. I'm gonna be sad. All right, so Joe, I think it took us an hour, but you have summed it up very well. Here, here is my takeaway for my shorthand takeaway for this game. And by my, I mean I'm basically just taking your words. <laughs> uh, my takeaway from this game, and then also looking ahead to the next game, I'm going to say good but inconsistent. Musa should start. Adam should too. Boom! Nailed it. Tied cool. a bow on it, Taylor. <laughs> we did it. Adam should too, please. <laughs> Maybe his, we can be his polite. My final yeah, amendment. That's good. Let's be polite. We'll, we'll send in a, a polite <laughs> request. I need that to happen, <laughs> Joe. Uh, it has been it has been a, a busy week for you, my friend. Uh, uh, final thing, like this is what your seventh show this week. Maybe I honestly can't remember, Taylor. That's terrible. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's been a lot of games. It has been a lot of games. It's been fun though. Like I. I'm continuously thankful, continually thankful, I'm losing my ability to speak, to you for, for letting me come on the show and be a part of the cast as TSS oh, yeah, like, is in this transition period. There's not one of these U.S. shows that I do that I don't wish Daryl was doing instead of me, but I am truly thankful that you have trusted me and allowed me to come on and, and talk about this game and many, 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 many other soccer-related things on a regular basis. I agree with everything you said, my friend. Uh, and it and it is genuinely like I, I find myself looking forward to these U.S. games again, J- not just because the U.S. is just an exciting team with a lot of talent, but because it's yeah, it's fun to chat with you. It's fun to break it down. And and I, I enjoy like our, our quick talks afterwards because I do feel like Joe does a good job of like, well, I think this was actually better. And I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll note that. I'll watch that. <laughs> that. That's the level of respect I have for young Joe Lowry that when he says, I think this happened, I'm like, it probably did. And I probably missed it. And that does tend to be the case. So, Joe, thank you for for that and many other things. You got it, Taylor. You got it. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we hope that that weekend ends with a U.S. victory in the Nations League. But until then, uh, thank you all again for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. 